This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Welcome to the Times Opinion Podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week in another election special I'm joined by the editor of the Times Red Box, Phil Webster, our political correspondent Laura Patel and a science correspondent Oliver Moody. Tony Blair has backed Ed Miliband and accused David Cameron of leading Britain into chaos over Europe. But will he be thanked for it? It's ridiculous that Labour's most successful leader has become a liability in the eyes of many in his party, but has he in the eyes of the country? There are still four weeks till polling day and you can't move for political spouses. It's demeaning to these successful women, patronising to voters and an admission by party leaders that they need an attractive wife next to them to look vaguely normal. Well done Nigel Farage for not indulging the trend, even if he may have little choice. Science will not be a deciding issue in the general election. But why not? I think the main reason is embarrassment. In spite of a nominal ring fence, Britain spends less than 0.5% of GDP on public funding for research, less than any other G8 country in the last 20 years. Politicians have clearly decided it's not a vote winner, but could they be wrong? Well, thanks very much, Oliver. Uh, Your first podcast with us. We look forward to actually bringing a substantial issue to our discussion rather than just opinion polls and who's up, who's down. This is unheard of. (laughs) Um, Phil, let's start with you though. Um, Many of our listeners will have an advantage over us because we're recording before Tony Blair has actually um, spoken but we have a good idea of what he's going to say. We think we do. We do. I mean he he has um, planned a speech in which he will attack David Cameron for bowing to UKIP and being forced into a referendum on Europe in 2017 and his speech said that it would be very damaging, a a long period of chaos and uncertainty for British business uh, for this to be going on. Uh, He backed Ed Miliband in the planned speech for standing up to demands from all sides to follow Cameron's example and he backed him for not promising a referendum on Europe. One of your thoughts, though, is that here is a huge election winner, and yet recently he gave a £1,000 donation to lots of Labour parties across the country, some of which returned that money, and you find it odd that he has this status in the, in the Labour Party. 
Yes, Blair is the embarrassing dad, really, of the Labour Party. He's, he turned up in Sedgefield to give this uh, speech supporting Ed Miliband, and an awful lot of people in the Labour Party rather wished he hadn't done it. I think it's crazy. Um, I'm one of those who believes that if Blair had stayed on, he might well have won the 2010 election. And yes, he has mismanaged his post-premiership year. There is no doubt about that. He's been attacked by the press, but also by politicians on all sides for what's seen as uh, avarice, um, money-grabbing activities. Quite a lot of the work that he's done has been for free, but, no, but nobody mentions that. And, of course, Iraq is a lasting legacy that has done him no good at all. Even so, Blair was the only Labour politician who could go beyond Labour's normal reach. I, I suspect that out there, there are still people who will be influenced by what Blair has to say today. Because he's, he's, he's a lot more popular with voters than with commentators, isn't he? I, I think I think there is a lasting uh, impact of Blair among the, among the voters. I've spoken to many who still say that Blair made them feel it was safe to vote for Labour, and they don't get the f same feeling about Miliband. Um, Laura Patel, you're desperately trying to come in. I yeah, I think there are two issues here, and the first is one that Phil's already identified, and that is Blair has so badly handled his image since leaving office. There's, there's the issue with Iraq and the sense that he has he doesn't understand at all why people feel so upset about what happened with that invasion. There's the issue about his business interests and some of the the regimes or leaders around the world that he's come out in support of, sometimes quite controversial. There's also the issue, I think, that he is so different to Ed Miliband, and we know that he's really not been... Mm very supportive of him over the last four well, years. I'm, I'm sat been... in front of me here with an email from Tory HQ mm. listing, actually sometimes these briefings come out and you think they're a bit thin, but actually when you look back at the number of times Blair has said pretty difficult things for Labour about their um, economic policies in particular they are completely different politicians. Exactly, he believes that Miliband is is wrong in terms of his view that the country has sort of moved left after the financial crisis. He recently defended his record on immigration and the and the hundreds of thousands of Eastern Europeans who came here after changes in the mid-2000s, and that's something that no political party is saying right now. And so I guess there's an issue that it feels a bit fake that he's now coming out to support Labour when we know that, really, he sort of wishes that someone else was in charge of the party. Do, do you see... Tony Blair coming to Ed Miliband's uh, aid as fake, Ollie? I think Europe is a very tactical issue to choose because it's probably the one area where there is unmitigated consensus between <laughs> yeah. uh, Tony Blair and Ed Miliband. Mm. If he hadn't come out today or at some point in the election and given his support, I think that would have looked very strange. So he clearly has, has had to do this because of the questions that would have been asked, asked in the press if he hadn't. Um, but whether there's... Whether it only serves to draw attention to the areas where Blair and Miliband disagree is um, is a very different question. And we should say, those, some, some of the readers of The Times would expect Michael Savage to be with us today. I should thank you, Phil, for being a last-minute substitute, but um, Michael has actually gone up, travelled up to Sedgefield to, to, to cover, the, uh, cover the talk. But key to Blair's appeal was this sort of Middle England reach that um, he had. And the Tories are obviously keen to highlight the fact that Ed Miliband doesn't have this reach. Will Tony Blair, you think, be able to say anything 
outside of the Europe debate that will will help Ed Miliband? Well, I think the very fact that he's he's backing him and endorsing him today will have some impact. And he needs to be absolutely categorical, doesn't it? Any sort of slight hesitation, which may have been picked up by the time some of our listeners hear this podcast, will be exploited by the Tory press. Yeah, I've seen the words, and uh, and they're pretty categorical, but mm. the, who knows? Who knows? He spent... Uh, by the way, I'm very happy to have come off the subs bench. Um, <laughs> but, super, um, super substitution. Yeah, I see he was the yeah. Angle Di Maria of uh, um, right. the uh, Times Opinion podcast. Good. Um, the Blair has spent four years trying to persuade Miliband to become more modernising, more new Labourish in mm. his outlook. Uh, he had to come out and back him during the campaign. He, he presumably feels he's, he's done all he can. Um, uh, I think a lot of Labour people f think that Miliband has been a bit too eager to disclaim the achievements of new Labour uh, and a little bit too quick to criticise mistakes of, of New Labour on immigration and regulation in the city. Whether this is any sign of a lasting um, reunion, uh, a lasting restoration of friendship, I don't know. But uh, it, will be, it will be seen, I think, as, a, as an important, not massive boost for Miliband. Laura Patel, um, Stephen Shakespeare of YouGov did some polling for the newspaper in which he said, actually, the public are ready for the cuts to be over. They want more public spending, a majority of voters. Also, the, uh, if Labour promised to no more foreign interventions, uh, except in the most exceptional circumstances when Britain was under attack, um, that would be incredibly popular too. Despite what's been said about needing Tony Blair to be in the campaign one time in order to avoid Tony Blair doesn't bat Ed Miliband's stories, actually would Labour have been wiser to have cut themselves adrift from Tony Blair and gone for a message that was very un-Blairite? Perhaps we are in post-Blairite times. I think we are, and I think they have gone for a message that is very un-Blairite, so whether or not he intervenes, I don't feel it's really affected that message. But it's interesting because, you know, Phil's talking about criticism of the Blair legacy. One of the biggest problems for Ed Miliband has been his difficulties in dealing with the with the financial crisis and the fact that Labour were in power at the time. And it's taken him a long time to try and get the party away from that and with something that the Tories still bang on about really and that that kind of explains why we're in this position where even though perhaps the public have had enough of austerity Miliband is actually kind of promising to sign up to large swathes of the Tory package and some people think that if he'd, his brother had been in power if he'd won the leadership contest instead that perhaps he would have been able to deal with it more more effectively but he might have had a bigger problem with the SNP and the Greens yeah if, and also I, lo I love the idea that David Miliband could have solved Labour's UKIP problem for example <laughs> I mean it's clearly nonsense um, I think he would have come with all his own sets of problems and Labour in Scotland of course would would actually quite like Miliband now to sign up to a complete non-austerity message mm. given where the SNP is standing on this issue and given the popularity of Nicola Sturgeon's anti-austerity appeal. There was, a, there was a front page splash in Monday's Times, Ollie, in which we reported that a lot of um, Labour people were unhappy about Ed Miliband agreeing to this debate with the opposition leader. So he'll be, I think it's the 16th of April, he'll be stood with Nicola Sturgeon, Leanne Wood, Natalie Bennett from the left, uh, Nigel Farage from the populist right. And how can he win in those circumstances? He's going to be attacked 
parts of his core vote are going to be attempt to be detached from him from both of those quarters. Is he right to gamble that just the more people will see of him because his uh, leadership ratings are so low at the moment, he can only gain? Or actually, are those people who worry about him agreeing to this debate correct? So the big Tory creed, one of the pillars of the um, their electoral strategy is this idea that the more the public sees of Miliband, the more it's going to get into the poll on election day and think, oh dear, is this what we're about to do? And I think what we have seen from the polling is that um, the more the public sees of, of Miliband, the more it not exactly warms to him, but it, the more it fleshes him out as a politician. So I think perhaps the um, dangers of this... Um, debate with the um, the minor parties have been overrated a bit. Okay. Well, we shall soon see. Yeah, Phil, I, think you da- I think there's a danger in the debate, but I think it's a, the opportunity is greater for him. He has been the guy who has been pushing for all the debates to take place, and at least it gives him the chance to stand in the middle of this cast of five, and he is the only one there who can become Prime Minister. Yeah. And just by being there, he should be able to, I would have thought, would be, should be able to emphasise his stature in the way that Oliver suggests. And he can also, also, of course, say, which wasn't actually something that was said in the seven-way debate, he can, of course, say, I've accepted all these debates, I want to be accountable mm. to you, and maybe he can make a virtue of that, Laura. Yes, absolutely. It's, it, I've had the privilege of sitting in some Times focus groups um, over the last few weeks and I've been watching people's views of Miliband change. It's really interesting because it's something I've heard before from Labour strategists. They say, oh no, when people first see Ed Miliband, they think he's all the stereotypes, he's weird and he's not prime ministerial. But I suppose when your expectations of someone are so low, if you're exposed to them for a bit longer, they can only improve. And I'm not saying that everyone suddenly thinks, oh, wow, he's fantastic, I can't wait for him to be our leader. But you do watch people's views of him change Mm. subtly and they say things like, oh, actually, he seems quite um, sincere or quite human and, you know, those are qualities that Labour are really hoping to play up. And, of course, one of the ways we are trying, or the political parties are trying to make their leaders seem more human is wheeling out their spouses. Which is a wonderful segue into your <laughs> um, uh, uh, topic. And we have, of course, seen Justine and Ed Miliband in one of their kitchens in that BBC News interview. We've seen Sam Cam on the campaign trail trying to de-seat, unseat um, Mark Reckless, the UKIP MP. We haven't quite so much seen so much of Mrs Clegg, but she's certainly been out and about. But Laura Patel, you are unimpressed. Tim, it's driving me mad. As I said, there's still four weeks to go and I can't believe how much we're being exposed to these political wives, to use that awful term. I just think that they're, they're women with great careers in their own right. So Justine Thornton, Ed Miliband's wife, is a barrister. Um, Miriam Gonzalez Durantes, to give her her full name, is a lawyer as well. And Samantha Cameron works in fashion. And um, we know that these women hate being rolled out. Um, It's patronising to voters because we're not voting for these women and they're not really anything to do with it. And it's just, as I said before, a recognition that these politicians are so odd that they feel they need a a woman (laughs) next to them to make them look normal. And as I said, the extraordinary thing is that Nigel Farage's wife is actually more involved in politics than any of these women because she actually has a hugely active role behind the scenes in UKIP. She's very active involving their, in organising their last party conference and you can see her on the fringes chatting with activists, having a glass of wine, talking to the MEPs um, and he has flatly refused to use his family. Now, that may have something to do with um, the fact that he's been accused of having an affair, something he denies, uh, and 
Godfrey Bloom, that char- characterful former UKIP MEP, once said that women were his weakness. But I have to say, I kind of women admire him. Women were Nigel Farage's weakness yeah, rather than Godfrey yeah, Bloom's weakness. Well, maybe yeah. both, who knows. <laughs> but I kind of admire him for just, even though his wife is very involved in UKIP, for just leaving her out of it. Mm. So try arguing against that, Ollie, guys. Do, do, do you share um, Laura's concern or... All politicians do this now, don't they? We've we've imported it from America, where the first wife is absolutely central to every campaign. I, I share Laura's point of view up to a point. I think it's an inevitable consequence of British politics becoming more presidential and um, the need to flesh out their characters beyond their political beliefs mm. and their competence. Um, I'm not convinced that it always works very well. Uh, Samantha Cameron gave an interview to one of the Sunday newspapers where she admitted to liking an indie band called Polisa. And um, the newspaper went tonto on her because um, one of their music videos features the lead singer hitting herself in the face with a hammer. And um, it was supposed to sort of glamorise domestic abuse. So you're, in some ways, exposing yourself to a whole new angle of personal attack as well as um, perhaps making voters warm to you a little bit. Uh, Phil, uh, I'm you, afraid you, I agree with Laura. I, I hate too much it. consensus around this. Yeah, table. well, yeah. I, possibly for different reason. I hate these. I hate photo opportunities. I hate all these soft focus things. I prefer, you know, I prefer reading what they're saying. So, are you, are you honestly telling me that because you, you you saw that picture of David Cameron feeding milk to that little lamb, <laughs> and you are not now going to vote Conservative because it, of that? It, portrait of humanity we saw it would certainly not change my vote whatever my vote was um and and as i it goes back to thatcher um embracing a calf when i was um um covering the election back in in 83 which again you're, you're made much all too the, young to have been covering we, that no no I, sure was there, I was there i was there i remember it but i and, have to ask you phil as someone who's covered a lot of elections dare i say like how how has it changed i mean thatcher it's interesting how women politicians fit into this because she didn't use Dennis Thatcher in the same way, did she? Dennis was Dennis was always there, rather in the way that um, Nigel Farage's wife is around. Dennis was always there on the election campaign, but he made sure that he didn't get into pictures with calves and and things like that. He might be sipping a gin and tonic in the background, but <laughs> he certainly wouldn't do that. But Perhaps um, more I have to one. say that Farage has has weakened slightly. Some papers this morning carry pictures of him being pictured with a young baby. Um, so that's the first sign, the first sign, of, first sign <laughs> of him uh, uh, relenting. Uh, the pint has been replaced by a baby in in in, in a poll in, in some of the pictures uh, today. So who knows if things start to look a little bit uh, ropey in South Thanet, we may see um, Mr. Farage just, 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 just kiss it. Just while, yeah. <laughs> just while we're on this topic of Nigel Farage and South Anna, because over the weekend we did have an elite opinion poll that appeared in the mm. Mail on Sunday, suggesting that actually South Anna, rather than being an easy route for the UKIP leader into Parliament, may well be a three-horse race, yeah. not just between the Tories and UKIP, but with Labour. The, basically, the poll had them all essentially on 30%. Now, Nigel... Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 
36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Farage has been very clear, and of course when Nigel Farage says something, we know he means it, um, that he will not stay as UKIP leader if he doesn't get into Parliament. Um, there's been talk of um, you know, who might succeed him, but if he's in trouble in South Thanet, um, he's going to be tied down there to win. He's not going to be out and about making the media waves mm. that UKIP need him to be, to be making. How... How serious do we think is um, the battle for South Anna is? I follow the odds quite a lot, and I did check the odds after this story appeared, and uh, Farage remained quite a strong favourite in South Th- South Thanet. Um, the Times, though, has revealed um, in a very good story how Labour are, are putting in a particularly strong effort there by targeting around 10,000 South Thanet voters who might yeah. be sympathetic to UKIP's aims. Whether that will help Farage in the end, I just, I don't know. It depends how many, Laura probably knows better than I do, how, how many committed supporters he has there. I wouldn't be at all surprised if he wins with Labour in second place. In a way, a three-horse race is exactly what Nigel Farage needs in some sense. Because yeah, so he can Tory, go through the middle. Yeah, the Tories really needed to be able to say to Labour voters, support us to keep Nigel Farage out of Parliament. But actually, if Labour think that they can win, then you you could divide the anti-Farage vote. Yeah, well, actually, I have to say, one of the things that was completely fascinating to me about this poll was that it was a leaked internal UKIP poll, and we still haven't got to the bottom of how it came out, but it, it tells you so much about the machinations that are going on behind the scenes in mm. UKIP, which is extremely riven with factionalism, like lots of small parties suffer from, well, and the larger ones too. <laughs> but um, the fact that someone put this out, I don't think that UKIP did it because they thought it would help their chances. I think it was done by someone who wanted to cause trouble. O- Oliver Moody? Well, the, um, that, that, that very day the poll came out, uh, Diane James, who's um, a senior UKIP politician, I think she's one of their... MEPs uh, gave an interview where she said that um, the leaders are already waiting in the wings to replace Nigel. And um, among the names that she cited was not Douglas Carswell, who is um, generally perceived as... He's one of UKIP's two MPs. He's generally perceived as being um, a great deal more moderate than um, the the sort of UKIP mainstream. And um, we might be seeing a very interesting piece of um, tactical positioning from the people who might want to be in place if Farage doesn't win in May. Yeah. Okay. Well, just before we move on to back to Oliver and his and his topic, let's just finish on your theme, Laura. And um, 
one thing we do know is however much you dislike this and obviously if you dislike it they should stop doing it immediately but this isn't going to change in british politics is it we saw sarah brown humanize gordon brown at the the last election i remember norma major writing books about checkers and making john major the family man we just have to accept it don't we my plea is that they these women say something a bit more interesting and be look a little less dotingly at their husbands okay well we shall keep an eye on that but uh I, I feel we may be disappointed. Now, Ollie, uh, Oliver Moody, you've given us a real substantial topic to discuss rather than just treating politics as a sport. Um, you're a um, science correspondent at The Times and you're worried that science is not being taken anything unless seriously by the parties. But we do have the manifestos to look forward to. Perhaps there'll be something in them. There's a Conservative MP quoted on the um, front page of The Independent today. Tuesday. Uh, on Tuesday. Tuesday, yeah saying um where are the sunny uplands and it's a very fair question i think he's crystallizing a criticism that's often made of the of this election campaign which is that it seems to be fought more on the squabbles of past mistakes than on aspirations for the future and one very obvious place you could look to for sunny uplands would be science it's something that britain is exceptionally good at compared to its um its gdp within the world order and um it's also something that's going to have a very strong role in determining the um, the future of our jobs market and of our exports and all sorts of things like that. So I find it extraordinary that over the past year, the past two years, there's barely been a peep out of any leading politician, still less the, the actual science minister, um, about Britain's successes. And um, I think the main reason for this is that um, it's quite simply that um, science funding has been cut in real terms. We're now spending less than any other leading country has for two decades and um and it's embarrassing yeah and the story about our uk spending on capital and science etc george osborne goes everywhere in his hard hat and his high visibility vest he's made an awful lot about investment in universities the truth is he the cuts that were planned have not been as great as originally thought at the beginning of the parliament but they've still been substantial and because he's eased the cuts perhaps people have been left with the impression that we're investing again in science and capital but you're correct the overall picture is still very bleak george osborne is very interesting in this context there's a story from um, the comprehensive spending review four years ago where um, apparently um the Treasury was planning to cut science spending by 25%, along with the most extreme cuts that um, went on in other departments. And um, there was a last-minute intervention by um, David Willits, who was then the Science Minister, and um, Sir John Beddington, who was then the government's chief scientific advisor, where they um, persuaded Osborne that actually keeping science funding the same in cash terms, not in real terms, would um, protect the UK economy for the future. And um, he appears to have relented. And he's also made a virtue, in spite of having frozen um, resource funding, of doling out these sort of um, Easter eggs of um, capital expenditure. So we have all these new institutions that he loves going to set up in his hard hat. There's some very interesting questions about whether there's the resource funding to to actually keep them going. Mm. And so we are low in terms of public spending and public sector spending on science. How do we compare with private sector investment in science R&D? So our our total spend on R&D is, uh, well it peaked at 1.8% of GDP in 2012 
and it's, it's sort of falling off. But um, very roughly, the public sector puts in about twice as much as um, the taxpayer at the moment. The private sector puts in twice as much as the taxpayer. Yes, sir. OK. And um, Laura, Phil, um, Ollie's made this plea. Politicians lo- love looking like they are the parties of the future. Is this not an obvious way for them to get into this territory? I, I, if it's not a vote winner, it it, it should be. There's so, so much of the workforce depends on a strong scientific base. Uh, and Ollie and um, MPs who agree with him might have an opportunity next week, last week, and to see these manifestos, which seem, we seem to have been hanging on far longer in this election for the manifestos to appear. Uh, and we read reports this morning that um, that they're still not uh, finished and it would be interesting to see the language and the actual commitment to science next week. I think there'll be a huge concentration among Tory MPs on overseas aid next week. They're going to see the wording around this 0.7% of GDP commitment. And which if we is now, of course, law. There's been a, a, a bill passed, which means that all government's hands are bound on the overseas aid budget. Yeah, yeah. if the figure for science comes out at less than that, uh, I think you're going to see Conservative MPs, certainly, Nigel Farage we and his we team particularly... We won't get a number for science, though, will we? That, no, depends, parties depends. don't normally specify... Well, Perhaps Ollie's wanting them to, if, but it's not normal for if, a political if, party to say we're going to spend X percent on science, X percent on defence, X percent on. If anybody um, says roads. we're going to double the spending on science, um, Ollie would get the calculator out <laughs> and, uh, and we'd quickly work out whether it was um, we, it was more than overseas aid. So I think there, there there is an opportunity around this subject and a lot of other subjects when these manifestos follow each other one by one next week for comparisons between what the parties are going to be doing on all kinds of issues. You're right, it's not a comprehensive spending review, so we don't get the exact figures, but you certainly get the feel of what they intend. Laura Patel, it's not going to happen, though, is it? We Political parties, whatever Phil may say, whatever Ollie may say, there aren't going to be many voters out there saying, I'm going to vote for X because they're committed to science. They want them to spend the money on pensions and health and all the other mainstream goodies that dominate the front pages from day to day. Right, I wonder what the problem is is here I was thinking about it is it is it that we have not very many scientists in parliament for example I think there's just one MP who has more than a PhD who did postdoctoral work that's the Lib Dem Julian Huppert who might lose his seat in May is it that the there's, sci- Philip, there's Philip Lee the Tory it, yes, doctor who's always well. asking for more um, science um, literacy amongst MPs. True, and him and Sarah Wollaston, another doctor, and Julian Hubbard, they all make an amazing contribution to the debate. And, you know, we've had a lot of issues up for votes recently, for example, the um, the three-parent baby subject, where we need people who know what they're talking about in the House of Commons. But I don't think it's fair to just blame the politicians for the fact that science isn't part of the national political agenda in this way. I mean, Ollie, I don't know, does the, does the scientific community need to shout louder? I feel that sometimes perhaps they, they talk in their own circles and we need more people like these public intellectuals who come out and make the case, make us excited about science. They do have strong representation in the Lords, of course. You, True. you do get pretty impressive debates on, on science in, in the Lords, so there is an area where they could be... Uh, could be pushing it. Praise for the Lords. Ollie, what, what's your answer to Laura's question? I think the trouble is really that um, science is in no way organised as, as a lobby in the way that you get with doctors or with teachers. There, there isn't really a sort of union of scientists. There are a few campaign groups, but they're very, very small. So there, there are no figures yet for um, the, the scientists to rally around and make their 
case and there is a very there's a massive vacuum for somebody to come out and say this is what britain could look like in 2050 we could be among the top five nations in the world by gdp and by scientific research but at the moment science is not like the nhs where if you cut it lives are at risk it's not like bin collections where if you cut them people notice that they're um, getting their rubbish taken out once every two weeks instead of once a week. You really do need a communicator to come out and say very clearly what's at risk here. I think it does need to be communicated well as well because we're talking in quite sort of cold, sterile terms about percentages and GDPs. But I want to hear, you know, are we going to have a new space programme or amazing centres that are going to discover a cure for this disease that we don't have at the moment? People, once you put it into exciting language like that, then it becomes much more tangible and thrilling really and the point you you um touched on um laura we've we know the percentage of women candidates that each of the parties have we know the percentage of ethnic candidates but we don't until you mentioned it many people have been unaware how few scientists there are in parliament a lot of the sort of women and ethnic minority candidates that the parties have recruited are still from political backgrounds or, or the financial sector or law yeah. yes or law exactly the kind of professional background we've had from the white men for, for for years do we in the media have a responsibility to to do, look more at the substantial backgrounds of candidates yeah and well dare i say it, i don't think there are that many journalists with science degrees either i put my <laughs> hand up with guilty there on that count but um Perhaps it's also about getting more science. You know, we need it through the layers, through the education system. I mean, politicians, it's very fashionable to bandy about this awful term about STEM subjects, which I think means science and technology and engineering and maths. Ollie, has there been much improvement in the number of people studying these subjects? And do you think that that could make a substantive difference to the national debate? Um, so with the addition of maths and science under the um, edu- under Michael Gove's education reforms to these um, core GCSEs, um, I think there has been a bit of a shift in terms of the number of pupils, but there is still a massive disparity between the number of boys studying science and maths at school and the number of girls. And that's being played out all the way up into the professional world of science, where it has an overwhelmingly male viewpoint and culture. Just before we end the podcast, thanks for uh, that, Ollie. Um, Phil, give us the state of the election race. Uh, I wrote for your red box that I thought the Tories had won the the first week. They had the business leaders letter. I think they would be largely pleased with the prominence of Nicola Sturgeon in the debate. And of course, there's the baby lamb picture as well. (laughs) (laughs) But the opinion polls moved very slightly, perhaps, towards the Conservatives. But they're basically still pointing towards probably, if they carry on like this, the SNP and Labour having more seats than the Tories and, and Lib Dems. I'm not sure that the polls necessarily will say that that's going to happen. The, I, I mean, my view is that this election will be decided in Scotland. And I still believe, despite what the constitutional experts tell us, that the party getting the larger number of seats is very much in poll position. And I say that because uh, if the Conservatives were to finish ahead of Labour, 10 seats ahead of Labour, they could well get to the magic 323 figure by doing a deal with the Liberals and the Democratic Unionists. And the Liberals have said that they'll talk first to the party with a large number of seats. Equally, uh, Miliband, even in second place, could probably get to the magic figure with a combination of the Liberals and the Scott Nats. He could get well over the 323 figure, 
But if the Liberals are prepared to do a second deal, not necessarily a coalition, with the Conservatives if they are in lead position, that, to my mind, makes it absolutely essential that they have to be in front. They couldn't... If the Tories are in second place, uh, what you are suggesting, I think, will happen, but with a, with, a, with a bit of help from the Liberals as well. The Liberals... I think what we're seeing at the moment is the old coalition enjoying tearing itself apart. It's happening all, all weekend, and it'll happen for the next four weeks. It won't be that hard for the Libs to think of doing a deal with Labour. But at the moment, the polls certainly point to the Tories ending up as the larger party, and that, I think, will be crucial if they stay that way. So in a month or so's time... Prime Minister will still be one David Cameron? Unless, as I say, what Miliband desperately needs is a change of mood in Scotland. Uh, he no, need, si- no sign of that at no all? No sign of it. We don't know what will happen as a result of the leak. The this, leak. Is the, this is the leak of the memo from the French yes, embassy the suggesting that Nicola Sturgeon didn't think Ed Miliband was up to be yeah. PM. Um, because... Disowned, Even though disowned she had, by the she, French embassy, we should say. Uh, she's, she's denied it. The French embassy had to deny it. I think both had to deny it. Whatever. They had to deny it. <laughs> Even if it's true. Um, but um, on the assumption that she didn't say it, it doesn't alter the fact that, of course, it's in the interests of the SNP to have a Tory government in Westminster. They want a second referendum. Uh, so if Jim Murphy can't play into that in one way or another, I'd be surprised. But you're right, there is absolutely no sign of the polls weakening. And if Miliband loses 40 seats in Scotland, he can't be the largest party, okay. the larger party down here. So um, putting you two on the spot, Ollie and Laura, Prime Minister in a month's time, David Cameron or... Ed Miliband. In a month's time, we won't have a prime minister. I think it'll be a. Oh, stop! Six weeks, eight <laughs> weeks time. Then. <laughs> I thought that was my way out. I don't know, Tim. You don't it's know. Too close to call. As a science journalist, I should decline to speculate in the absence of hard evidence. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Um, you two got out of it. He's got me on record now. I got a big if in there, though, didn't I? You did the, get I a big. You did get a big if. I, I do think one very interesting question in Phil's scenario is whether it changes things if Nick Clegg loses his seat, no. and um, the the Liberal Democrats' leadership succession is, is quite unclear. Yeah. Which, of course, is very possible in uh, some hard evidence in the shape of opinion polls that we have. It does suggest that uh, Nick Clegg is trailing very, very slightly. But I, um, I'd be astonished if Nick Clegg loses his seat. Yeah, firm OK. Prediction. That is a firm I'd prediction. I'd be astonished. Yeah. Well, we're going to hold you to that, Phil. Phil Webster, Laura Patel, Oliver Moody, thank you very much for joining me today for this podcast. All Times subscribers, I invite you to go to thetimes.co.uk slash commentcentral where I'll post some Times articles that provide background reading for some of the issues that we've been discussing. Uh, We'll be back with extra podcasts throughout the month uh, covering the election. And also I welcome back uh, my producer, Dave McGuire, and see you soon. Thank you for listening. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 